0: at the Seaboyden and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On October 4, 2019, the Gray Center co-hosted its second annual Administrative Law Symposium with George Mason Law Review. This year, the topic we selected was the administration of democracy. That is, the ways in which administrative agencies are involved in our democratic processes. Today's fourth panel focused on the regulatory process itself and the democratic values at stake in that process. We discussed a paper by the University of Louisville's Professor Russell Weaver. The paper was titled, Rulemaking in an Internet Era, Dealing with Bots, Trolls, and Form Letters. The discussion was moderated by Professor Caroline Secott of George Mason University, and it included commentary from Reeve Bull of the Administrative Conference of the United States and Malaika Momond of Esper, a company focused on improving regulatory processes in state governments. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So our fourth panel at today's conference is titled The Democracy of Administration, a look at the ways in which technology affects the democratic values of the rulemaking process. This discussion is moderated by my colleague, Assistant Professor of Law at the Scalia Law School, Caroline Sessett. She is an Assistant Professor of Law at the Scalia Law School uh, where her research focuses on cost-benefit analysis, regulatory reform, and energy and environmental regulation. Now, if you come to our conference's office, uh, often often enough you'll recognize her as a familiar face. At our last conference on cost-benefit analysis, she and Bob Hahn co-wrote a paper on Modern Trends and Cost-Benefit Analysis. We're glad that you can join us again today.
1: (laughs) Always happy to be here. uh, And thank you to everyone for staying. So the majority of agency rulemaking is informal notice and comment rulemaking. And administrative law scholars have long characterized that opportunity for comment as serving many important functions. So for one, the uh, solicitation of public comments could bring some democratic legitimacy to agency rulemaking. It also forces the agency to be transparent about the policies that it intends to pursue and later about its basis for rulemaking in light of uh, the comments. It also serves a quality control function. Interested parties with special expertise can provide evidence and data that could improve the agency's decision making. So in fact, it seems all good So when the internet promised to revolutionize rulemaking by reducing the cost of participation, there was much excitement about the prospects. But instead, for many rulemakings, we have the same 12 insiders commenting, while for the most politicized or most controversial or most important rulemakings, we have more comments, much more, sometimes even in the millions. And as Russell Weaver discusses in his paper, many are duplicative some have zero information value, and some are even fake. Agencies sorting through these comments waste time. They may walk away with a biased view of the public perspective, and they might even miss some of the important stuff. So figuring out what to do with all these comments is extremely important, and I'm excited to spend the next hour with you all and with the panel uh, sorting through these issues. So again... Our jumping off point for discussion is Russell Weaver's paper entitled Rulemaking in an Internet Era, Dealing with Bots, Trolls, and Form Letters. Russell is professor and distinguished university scholar at the Louis D. Brandeis School of Law at the University of Louisville, where he teaches constitutional law, remedies, administrative law, criminal law, and criminal procedure. Uh, And he's a prolific author with dozens of books and articles. And after Russell sets up his paper, um, we'll hear from our two discussants. Uh, First, unless we switch the order, uh, we'll hear from Reeve Bull, the uh, research director of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Reeve has worked on projects related to use of science by administrative agencies, presidential review of agency rulemaking, and among other things and then we'll hear from Malika Momand, the CEO and co-founder of Esper, a technology platform that streamlines the rulemaking process across government stakeholders. So each of our speakers will talk for about ten minutes, um, and let's start this discussion. Russell. Hey.
2: Good. Thank you. Is that on? Can you hear me okay? All right. Good. My particular interest is technology, internet, in particular, how the internet interacts with society and how it affects the democratic process. If you'll bear with me, I'm going to to want to quickly start away from the administrative process, simply talking about the development of technologies, because it tells us something about the Internet. Because we look at the evolution of speech technology in particular, one of the things we see is that we've seen these dramatic advances over the century. I mean, if you think about centuries ago, if you have a battle being fought in a distant place, a Roman emperor would learn about the outcome of that battle Slowly, the information would come back by horse or chariot or boat or someone on foot, but quite slowly. The first major advance we have in terms of technology is the Gutenberg Press. I'm not going to talk a lot about the Gutenberg Press, but it was revolutionary because it made it possible to create multiple copies of documents. And it led to, I think unquestionably, the American Revolution. It led to the Protestant Reformation, led to all sorts of changes in society over the centuries. Eventually, we get to the development of electricity, several number of hundred years later. But what we see is technology, electricity in particular, makes it possible for information to move much more quickly than people could move. This is kind of an abbreviated version of, of. of what I wanted to say, but because um, I've only got a limited amount of time. The other major factor that we see is that historically we've had gatekeepers who could control what people could read, see, or speak. I mean, when we think about newspapers, for example, the Gutenberg printing press, what we see is newspaper editors and reporters and owners could decide who could publish in those newspapers. Um, When we talk about radio and television, we see the same thing. And so over time, there were great limits on what ordinary people could do. The Internet has transformed society in lots of ways, as everybody knows. For one thing, it's made it possible for ordinary people to communicate on a broad scale. And we see that with, I mean, all sorts of technologies when we look at Facebook, Twitter, um, other technologies. And moreover, by and large, there were some exceptions, which I'm not going to go into because of time. By and large, people have been freed of the traditional gatekeepers. In other words, they want to communicate, they can communicate. And even when we find that groups like our organizations like Facebook or Twitter, Try to limit their communication. People still have the ability to communicate, um, and so when Alex Jones gets banned from from Google and Facebook and Twitter, he's still on the internet, and people can still communicate with him. Now, as we think about the administrator, let me say one more thing about that. Though, it's a huge advance democratically when we see what the internet has done. We see it, for example, in the Middle East. You know, when you look at the Egyptian revolution, the Arab Spring, driven heavily by the Internet, driven heavily because it allowed people to communicate directly with with each other. Prior to um, the development of the Internet, we had newspapers, we had television, we had radio, but the government could control all three. When we get to the Arab Spring, government can't, they can continue to control radio, television, uh, newspapers, but they can't control the flow of information on the internet. And as a result, people protested. They could coordinate their protest over the internet and basically do an end around the traditional media. Now, it's interesting because at one point, Hosni Mubarak decides that what he should do is shut down the internet and decides this is a good idea. And I could have told him this was a really bad idea because you think about it, the internet, you know, at one point Marx said, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. Well, today it's clearly the internet, you know, and, and you, you, on my campus, I can be walking across campus really get run into by students who all they're doing is trying to do things on their cell phones. And actually, um, so it's, you know, and, and so think about what happens. When he decides to shut the Internet down, what he's trying to do is quell the protest. The problem he didn't think about was he had all these people who were up in their apartments or, or houses surfing the Internet who now had nothing to do. And so what happened was the protests swelled. Now, one quick discussion of problems, and then we'll start talking about rulemaking. When we talk about problems, what's good and bad? I mean, I can give you lots of examples of how the Internet has affected the democratic process in positive ways in the United States. I mean, you look at the election of Barack Obama. You look at the election of Rand Paul how they effectively use the Internet to communicate with people. But the other problem is, you know, we've seen the information about bots, you know, essentially computers, um, and how they can spew out information. We see it with trolls. You know, in other words, at the Internet Research Agency in Russia, they have lots of workers, and what they want to do is communicate misinformation we see about the efforts to interfere in US elections. So, that brings us to administrative rulemaking. All the same problems. You know, Jeff Lubbers wrote a great article some years ago where he touted the potential benefits of, of the internet. How, for the first time, it enabled people, ordinary people, the ability to communicate effectively in the administrative process. You could look at NOPERS online, you could comment online, potentially respond online. It it was a huge advance. And and to some extent, that's entirely correct. You know, and, and it's supplemented with other things. Not only can you get information from agencies, but there are lots of studies and empirical evidence online so if somebody's wanting to comment on a on a technical in a technical area that requires a lot of expertise well you can find the data you need online in order to make those comments so no question the internet has the potential to revolutionize the administrative process but you have the same problems you have with ordinary internet communication bots you have trolls, and I suppose in the administrative context we can add one other thing, which is form letters, because if organizations want to try to influence the outcome of a, of a administrative rulemaking, what they do is ask their members to take this form letter and send it to the administrative agency. And the difficulty with all this is that as this happens with bots, trolls, form letters. We've seen a dramatic increase in the number of comments on administrative rulemakings, and the, the extremes on um, the first FCC net neutrality uh, rulemaking, we saw four million comments. On the second one, we saw twenty-three million comments. Now, how an agency makes sense of all this is unclear. First, we have to figure; they'd have to figure out which of these are valid comments, which are simply generated by machines, and therefore the question of whether they should be considered at all. And then even if they were all legitimate comments, the question is how you go through 23 million comments. And, you know, because it's not a vote. We're not simply tallying up the comments and saying, oh, well, this side wins. Um, you know, and there's a sense that they tend to give more credence to comments that involve technical data or are more sophisticated. But still, when you're start, when you're getting 23 million comments, there's a lot to go through. So, my sense in, in, regarding administrative rulemakings, it's the same as what I saw with the internet. Generally, there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad. And I guess we'll turn it over. to
1: Thank you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Wonderful. So uh, first, thanks uh, to Adam and Andrew and uh, Leah for the opportunity to participate with these, uh, my fellow distinguished panelists, and uh, thanks in particular for, to Russell for this um, excellent paper. I would highly commend it to, uh, to all of you. Uh, when it becomes available. And um, what I'd like to do in my presentation is uh, take the taxonomy that Russell puts forth in his paper, the sort of types of problematic comments, if you will, that have emerged uh, with the rise of the internet, um, and basically overlay that taxonomy with what I see as the policy justifications for noticing comment, or, or for public participation more generally. Um, and what I think this yields is some kind of interesting and, and, and anomalous results, and in particular, I think whether or not these types of comments are a problem really sort of depends on, on these undergirding policies. Uh, so I'll try to do that quickly. I also want to briefly um, set forth the relevant law, uh, some of the work that my agency has done in the administrative conference, uh, some of the recommendations we've issued in this area, and then try in a very, very brief uh, fashion to try to sketch a possible path forward. Uh, so, first is the taxonomy of, of problematic comments. And, you know, I put that in quotes because I think whether they're problematic really depends on what the purpose of the exercise is. Uh, and I think Russell is exactly right in terms of laying out sort of three distinct types of potentially problematic comments. The first are so called fraudulent or fake comments. Uh, where the person is either misreporting his or her identity or perhaps including fraudulent information in the comment itself. Uh, then there are so-called bot comments, where it's basically a computer algorithm. It's not an individual person that's actually writing the comment and submitting it to the agency. Uh, and then finally, there are so-called mass comments, which is hardly a new phenomenon. I think it's become much more pronounced, obviously, in the Internet age. Ah, uh, but you have going back decades postcard writing campaigns where you know the Sierra Club or some other entity would encourage their members to submit a postcard to the agency, so the agency would get thousands or tens of thousands of, of virtually identical comments. Um, I had a uh, oh great the PowerPoint is uh, oh excellent thanks. Uh, so you'll see you know I put up a uh, Venn diagram, and this is obviously imperfect. Um. For instance, I think there's probably a lot more overlap between fake comments and bot comments than this suggests, but the point I wanted to make is there's each a distinct phenomenon, and there's definitely some overlap uh, between these three. Uh, So moving on uh, to the relevant law. Um, So I think the key provision here is just Section 553C of the APA, that the agency is required to consider the relevant matter presented in the comments that they receive. Uh, what's interesting though is I think, um mass and bot and fake comments really force us to look at exactly what does that mean considering the relevant matter presented, uh, when you're getting these types of, of high volume comments. Uh, so for instance, mass comments. Um, now as Russell said, and I think everybody agrees with this, the rulemaking comment a process is not a plebiscite. So the agency should not tabulate the number of comments received and somehow take that as a vote, either in favor of or against the policy, among other things, wildly unrepresentative uh, of the underlying population. Um, So the number of comments received are probably irrelevant. Uh, However, you know, they should take the comment into account at least once insofar as it includes relevant information. Uh, Fake and bot comments, um, similarly, probably can be ignored. Um, however, if you push on it a little bit, I think it poses an interesting question, because with bot comments particularly, let's posit the possibility that you have a bot that actually writes something that is relevant, that actually uh, is worth considering on the part of the agency. Are they legally required then to take that into account? I think it's less of an issue now, because these bots tend to generate pretty unsophisticated comments. In fact, it's pretty obvious that it's a bot comment, but the technology is progressing very rapidly, and it's certainly conceivable that you could have a bot that could uh, survey the underlying literature and actually put something together that, that might in fact be relevant. Uh, so there are a lot of sort of interesting legal uh, questions that have been raised that agencies are grappling with, and I don't think any of them sort of have clear answers at this point. I think partly because the technology is still new and and still evolving. Uh, We at the administrative conference have sort of dabbled in this space a little bit. Uh, So we've issued several recommendations um, in my first bullet point, and the upshot of which is basically that agencies should use technology uh, to try to promote broad participation in the notice and comment process. So use social media, other venues to try to encourage people, especially communities that might not otherwise be submitting comments, to submit comments to the agency. Uh, we also, in one of those recommendations, explicitly endorse the idea of deduplicating comments. So if the agency gets comments that are identical or substantially identical Uh, Our position is that the agency should feel free to just treat that as a single comment and ignore the actual number of comments that they've received, which I think is basically the approach that that most agencies are taking. Uh, Then we also have a second set of recommendations that encourage agencies to supplement the notice and comment process. So our perspective is obviously notice and comment is very important. Uh, but the agency should really sort of look at the whole life cycle of the rulemaking from conceiving of the rule to retrospective review of existing rules um, and seek out public participation where relevant. Uh, so that's sort of the general background. What I'd like to do now uh, briefly uh, is sort of introduce what I see as sort of the, the, the two policy justifications that you hear most broadly in this space and then tie those to the different types of comments uh, so the first justification is technocratic. The idea of notice and comment is that the agency is obtaining dispersed information from the public uh, that they might not otherwise be able to generate on their own, and that increases the sophistication of the rulemaking process. They can then take that into account. Uh, there's also a democratic justification that you frequently hear in the literature. I think everybody agrees, as 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 Russell stated, that this is not a plebiscite. Uh, however, some, like Professor Nina Mendelson, for instance, at the University of Michigan, have argued if the agency does get a massive number of comments, and especially if the comments all point in a particular direction, uh, perhaps the agency actually should take that into account uh, in some way. Uh, so let's explore briefly how um, these policies line up with the different types of problematic comments. Uh, so first, let's take a purely technocratic perspective and say that the only purpose of notice and comment or public participation more generally uh, is to garner relevant information for the agency's consideration. Uh, and I think actually, though, that's probably the perspective most people subscribe to. It actually ends up yielding results that might seem sort of counterintuitive. Uh, so for instance, mass comments. If you're looking at it from a purely technocratic perspective, then the overall number of comments received is irrelevant. In net neutrality, if they got millions and millions of comments, that doesn't matter. They should just take into account the actual information and the comments themselves. I think that probably strikes some as as, as troubling, that the agency would just ignore such an overwhelming response. But if we're looking at it technocratically, that's, I think, the right way of addressing it. Whereas bot and fraudulent comments, by contrast, might actually be relevant. If a bot actually generates something that's relevant, the agency should take into account Similarly, with fraudulent comments, uh, as long as the identity of the commenter doesn't matter, then if it contains relevant information, then the agency should consider it. However, you might have instances where the identity does matter if the person is purporting to represent a particular entity, and then the agency should take that into account. Uh, Conversely, if you look at it from a democratic perspective, then I think you get a different set of results. So... Mass comments might actually be relevant. Uh, Of course, you have to ensure that the comments actually correspond to real people, and that's not necessarily always the case. But as long as you can establish that, uh, then from a democratic perspective, the agency should be considering uh, the number of comments that they receive, and particularly if they point strongly in one direction or the other. Bot comments and fraudulent comments, by contrast, would be irrelevant. If it's a democratic exercise, if it's not an actual person, or if the person has misrepresented his or her identity, uh, then the agency should not be taking that into account. Uh, So finally, um, what I'd like to do is sort of briefly uh, go through sort of what this means in terms of of moving ahead, how agencies should take all this into account as they're structuring their rulemaking processes. Uh, and I think at the very outset, the agency really needs to ask itself, what is the goal of this particular exercise? Uh, how democratic or technocratic should the exercise be? And I think it really varies from rulemaking to rulemaking. So I won't have time to get to my subsequent slides, but one of them uh, was a, an example Professor Nid- Mendelssohn used in one of her articles where it uh, was a rule that dealt with the use of snowmobiles in national parks. Uh, so in that case, you might actually care what people in that national park uh, or people near there think about uh, the presence of snowmobiles. So it might have a democratic element to it. Uh, whereas other rules, you know, arsenic levels in drinking water or any number of highly technical things, uh, you probably don't care so much about how people feel about that. Congress has made the policy determination. Really what you're looking for is relevant information that the agency can take into account as it's crafting that rule. Uh, And in light of sort of the answer to those questions, then I think the agency can do certain things to optimize notice and comment, and perhaps supplement notice and comment in order to advance these policies. Uh, So on the optimization front, um, if uh, the agency gets massive numbers of comments, uh, if it's really more of a technocratic issue, Uh, then I think it should ignore those, or it should take it into account once and uh, ignore the overall volume received. Uh, On the other hand, if there's a democratic element to it, then maybe the agency should, to some extent, consider uh, the numbers received, uh, though certainly not treating it as a plebiscite. Uh, Similarly, with respect to fake comments or bot comments, if it's a technical exercise, maybe you don't care so much about the identity, even if it's being submitted by a computer. Uh, On the other hand, if it's a democratic exercise and you do care about the identity, then perhaps there are exercises you can put in place, and Russell touches on some of these in his paper, uh, to actually ensure that the individual submitting the comment is a real person uh, and is the person he or she purports to be. So you could use CAPTCHA technology, or you could perhaps even require an affirmative statement when you're submitting the comment, uh, subject to criminal prosecution perhaps, uh, that you're actually the person that you purport to be. Of course, that raises the question if it would have a chilling effect on the participation, which you know I think is a countervailing cost. Uh, and then similarly, the agency might look at ways to supplement the notice and comment process. Uh, so if it's a democratic goal, then there are probably more sophisticated ways than notice and comment uh, to actually determine what the p- public policy preferences are. You could do an opinion poll, which would be Uh, much more representative, Uh, or as I've written in an article in the administrative law review, you could perhaps use something like a citizen jury, where you would present an issue uh, to a group of people with briefing materials. Then you'd get, uh, assuming it's, you know, demographically representative, both a representative sample as well as a more informed sample. Similarly, if it's more of a technocratic exercise, uh, there may be ways to supplement there. So, uh, for instance, negotiated rulemaking might be a possibility where you bring the key stakeholders into the room, have an iterative exchange, and you're probably going to get more sophisticated input that way uh, than you would with just pure notice and comment uh, or just use advisory committees more generally. Um, of course, notice and comment will always be legally required, uh, and the agency will continue to do that in appropriate instances. But there are ways that you can tailor it, and also ways that you can supplement it. Uh, I think, in order to, in some instances, more effectively capture these goals of uh, the process. And the final thing I'll say is, you know, going forward, I think agencies will have to be very, very mindful of these issues, uh, because as the technologies evolve and as they become more sophisticated. And there's almost something of an arms race between particularly the bots that, you know, generate these comments and the agency's abilities to identify things as bot comments. So moving forward as the technologies progress, I think these will continue to be salient issues uh, and things that the agencies will have to be very mindful of going forward. Thank you.
4: All right, while this slide, is it on? All right. Uh, My name is Malika. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Esper, which is a regulatory technology platform that helps governments manage the rulemaking process. Um, There's our logo. I am sort of chuckling over describing the the technology development process as an arms race, particularly in this space. I've never thought of myself as running an an arms company, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe I'll put that on my business card. (laughs) Um, Cool. So I will give you a little bit of background on why I started Esper um, and then talk to you about some of the ways I think technology can help make the rulemaking and particularly the public comment process more transparent, more data-driven, and more accountable to the public and within agencies. There we are. So just so we're all familiar, I'm sure we know, um, this is what the traditional rulemaking process looks like in government. There are a lot of steps. This is simplified. Um, We had a lot of fun putting this together um, back at our offices in Austin. And what ESPR tries to do is really take in the key elements of all of that from initial research, drafting public comments, um, put it into technology, modernize it, and then make it transparent both internally within agencies and then also to uh, the public as well. Right now, for context, we're mostly operating at the state level in a few federal agencies. So I started Esper after working at a nonprofit research firm called Argive. And Argive was based in Silicon Valley and part of an arm of a venture capital firm called ABC. Um, And this was back in 2016 when regulatory reform was sort of a hot topic. It was the topic du jour. And uh, it was especially salient in Silicon Valley because technology companies are beginning to wake up to the fact that they're not immune from regulation, right? Um, GDPR was coming out. Google, Facebook, Twitter were all coming under fire. Um, and at the VC firm where I was working, uh, technology companies were trying to figure out how to navigate regulation because for smaller startups, right, there are, regulation poses a high barrier to entry if you don't have the legal, you know, acumen to figure out how to navigate it. Um, so we were at the nonprofit researching how can we better understand and drive rulemaking to help people you know, participate, uh, make sure they're heard, and then also ensure that, you know, proper cost-benefit analysis and diligence at the agency level is being done. Um, So we pontificated a lot at the nonprofit, as you do, Um, and we also spent a lot of time talking to folks in agencies, um, people at the EPA. Um, We looked at regulations.gov. We talked about the federal docket management system, which is the government's internal way of managing all the public comment processes. Um And we produced what I would call a seminal report called ImprovingRegulations.gov, um, which actually introduced me to Adam, and it introduced me to Reeve a few years ago. Um, and in this report, we basically looked at regulations.gov. We looked at two dockets, um, one that had a high-volume number of comments, and then one that had very few comments. Um, like you said, sometimes there are millions, and sometimes there are 12. Uh, and we put on our, you know, sort of technology consumer app uh, lenses and said, how can we look at this website and the way public comment periods are being held and uh, try to insert more data and best practices from consumer technology um, to, to drive more transparency? So, like I said, we looked at regulations.gov, and I think it is also important to, to talk about the federal docket management system, FDMS, because... Uh, that's the government's way of organizing all of this data and information that's being collected through regulations.gov. <laughs> so, uh, each of the next several slides, um, goes through the white part of the slide is gonna be like challenges or observations that we noticed, um, when looking at these two dockets. And then the second, uh, the darker part of the slide is, you know, what we think can be done about this. So the first is that it's very difficult to quickly interpret and summarize public comments. Um, Comments right now on regulations.gov are submitted as free text, um, or they're uploaded PDF attachments. And from a software engineer perspective, that's like your worst nightmare, because the data is not structured, right? Um, And what you really want to do with data is structure it and begin to pull out insights or parse the data. so because it's structured or unstructured right now, it's difficult to do that. Um, so if you have a high number of comments on a really you know, contentious docket, um, it can be difficult to figure out what the public sentiment is, um, if there's constructive feedback in there, or if it's just a bunch of carbon copy comments. Um, so again, I'm very mindful, as uh, as Reeve said, of not trying to make the rulemaking process a site. Um, But I do think that there are ways that we can better filter and organize comment information to uh, make it more digestible, both in the public and on the government side of things. Um, So the first would be enabling comments on comments. If Reeve leaves a comment on an EPA rulemaking that I think is pretty valid and I'd like to like add my own two cents to it, what if I'm able to do that? But right now you can't. Um, What about comment upvoting? Um, Again, like maybe I don't want to leave a comment on Reeve's comment, but I just want to give it my thumb of approval. Maybe that's a way to, you know, reduce noise, but also show, you know, comments or arguments that are getting support. Um, Other things that can be done are docket summary statistics. If you go on regulations.gov right now, you'll see like here, you know, dockets that are trending. But what constitutes trending? Is it trending negatively, positively? Why is it trending? Um, Is it because there's media attention coming to it or there's a high number of public comments or the comment period is closing? Um, Adding more analytics to this can uh, help people understand and organize information better. Other ways to filter uh, and organize large documents or dockets would be to filter by industry, by NAICS codes, um, which is the North American Industry Classification System, um, or other ways of tagging the data, again, to make it easier to organize. Um, and I think that when you go on regulations.gov, it can be a little bit overwhelming if you don't know what you're looking for. Um, so, if we want to reduce the barrier to entry for people that should be participating in the rulemaking process, organizing the information or creating a better IA, which is information architecture, is paramount. Okay. Uh, the next is uh, the majority of comments in the two dockets we looked at came from industry associations um, with a high concentration in D.C. We actually mapped all of this in a very large spreadsheet. Um, so ways to figure out where comments are coming from and who they're coming from I think is also important, just so you know your audience. Um, you can track by geography or user type. User type might be industry association, private individual, small business, medium business, large business. While these factors don't necessarily need to determine the outcome of a rulemaking, I think knowing who is commenting on a rulemaking um, is important, you know, to, to make sure that maybe everything is being heard. There are groups like the Small Business Administration Office of Advocacy whose job is to make sure that small businesses are represented in the public comment period. But right now, how do we know if small businesses are actually represented? There's no good way. Um, another thing, and this is particularly you know, popular in consumer technology, for better or for worse, is to leverage email data to send email notifications on related rules. So if uh, I comment on the snowmobile regulation that Reeve mentioned, I'm just going to borrow your <laughs> shamelessly. Um, you know, what if I also want to know about snowboarding regulations, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you can uh, very easily use technology and email marketing um, to, you know, say if you liked this, then you may also want to comment on this. How many times have you been caught on Amazon buying maybe too many things you should have just because Amazon's algorithms are very good at recommending um, some other things you might want to add to your shopping cart. Um, you could also tag rules with NEX codes and build RSS feeds around them, or allow users to self-identify within a group, um, so that you know ultimately we know where public comments are coming from, and you can better uh, parse the data as well. A lot of my presentation focuses on organizing information and data, That's the theme. Uh, the next thing that both of my panelists talked about is you know duplicate comments, bots. Carbon copy comments. This is nothing new, but it's uh, definitely become more of an issue and heightened over the past few years. Um, and there are ways to get around this. There's definitely CAPTCHA. There's ways to uh, authenticate users um, through, you know, typing in like the five two two three or whatever, you know, passcode they ask you to do. Um, you could allow people to post petitions and actually let people, you know, sign their name to it that way, and that can be a way to reduce carbon copy comments because ultimately these duplicate comments just create a lot of noise um, in what would otherwise be, you know, an easier-to-navigate docket. It goes on. There we are. Okay, and this is the one that I feel most strongly about. Um, Language and deadline constraints on dockets. Now, per APA, right now, You know, the agency has, like, maybe a 90-day, sometimes longer comment window for how long uh, people can leave comments on a proposed rulemaking. Um, I think this limits constructive participation, because what if this rulemaking has been going on and I didn't know about it? Um, Am I still not allowed to talk about it with the agency? Um, I think that we should... You know, we can keep the deadlines, but I would also like to add that we should do living dockets where at any point someone should be able to go and leave a comment on a rulemaking. And if it hits a certain number of comments or threshold of comments on a rulemaking, then it triggers a review or, um, a, a, you know, at least an agency an investigation on what people are saying about it. Um, because a lot of times an agency will do a proposed rulemaking, they'll have their public comment period, people say their piece, then the rule goes into effect. And then five years later, people have a lot of opinions about it, right? Because um, they've had the time to actually feel the effects of the rulemaking on their business, um, on their livelihoods, and that's when you really want to go in a, and, you know, leave your feedback. Maybe it's after you've been fined by the EPA for something that you think is dumb or uh, wishing that the rulemaking was stricter because you see a lot of bad faith actors in the marketplace. Um, that, I think, is something that we should allow and incorporate into regulations.gov. Um, I sort of liken it to the analogy of leaving a, you know, review on Yelp for a restaurant. Um, it's not like you go have dinner at a place and then you have to leave a comment on or a feedback on that restaurant within 24 hours. You can go on Yelp whenever you want to and leave a, you know, review on, uh, on Yelp. So that's something that I think is important and would be a better way to solicit better public feedback. Um, Along those lines, I also think that we could supplement the public comment process by creating advisory boards um, or even having agencies ask specific questions about the rulemaking, like what are they trying to get out of it? Public feedback, um, cost-benefit analysis. Uh, By creating forms, we can make the rulemaking and public comment more data-driven. How am I doing on time? Nearly there.
1: Yeah, I've got like You're a, about a minute okay, over, okay, okay, but okay. I've been, I've been generous and this okay. is all very interesting. <laughs> all
4: wrap, all wrap.
1: Um, maybe I'm
4: going to be forced to wrap. <laughs> oh, there it goes. All right. So talking about cost benefit models. Um, and then ultimately what I want to show you is here are some graphs and things from our product where by collecting better information and organizing uh, the, the public comment data on the front end. Uh, we can do really interesting analytics on, you know, affiliations of comments or sentiment analysis, where the public comments are coming from from different regions in the United States. So maybe an EPA regulation is really favored by California, but you know, has high negative sentiment in Texas. This is all interesting data that we can only glean by cleaning up and making regulations.gov and the FDMs more accountable um, and collecting better information on the front end. So with that, thank you for your time. Mm-hmm
1: so this has been really fascinating so i have just a few questions i wanted to get us started and then i'll try to leave some time for you guys too um but just to emphasize how timely and important this discussion is just last night i came across two articles and i thought i'd get maybe the panel's reactions on some of these so BuzzFeed had a news article out yesterday about how interested parties are spending millions on companies that advertise expertise in overwhelming agencies with public submissions on certain positions, and that BuzzFeed's own investigation suggests that they often generate fake comments to do this. Uh, And then also yesterday, the GW Regulatory Studies Center released a paper by Stephen Bala and co-authors on the efficacy of mass comment campaigns. The examined comments uh, between 2012 and 2016 uh, that EPA received, and they found that these mass comments had virtually no substantive effect. So the agency might procedurally note the number in its final uh in its basis and purpose when it releases the final um n- rule, but makes no substantive changes based on any of these kinds of mass comments. Um so any reactions to these two data points? Um and what is this what does this suggest about the process?
2: Well, I think it's the problem you have with the internet generally. Um, sometimes campaigns have a big effect, sometimes they have no effect. Um, we see that, you know, administratively, some years ago when people were objecting to TSA pat downs and they started this, they tried to have this campaign for. Opt out the day, and the idea was that the day before Thanksgiving uh, everyone would refuse to go through the scanners and force them to pat down everyone, thereby collapsing the system. And of course, it didn't work because most people on Thanksgiving are more concerned with getting home than they are with protesting, and if you collapse the system, they're not going to get home that day. And so but it was it was extraordinarily interesting how the idea went in a matter of a couple of weeks. From just an idea to to be getting national controversy, and and so eventually within two or three weeks you've got the head of TSA coming on the media talking about this and people debating it, and it was interesting because it ran its course within the within five or six weeks because people thought it was a good idea to begin with, but the more they thought about it, they thought this is a stupid idea, so so. It shows, I think, that, you know, when we talk about these attempts to have mass communications that influence agencies, well, you might or might not. And the question is, are they really going to look at all these comments? Now, I like some of the ideas that they suggested for dealing with this. Actually, the idea I like best was some author recommended that we just charge a dime for every comment. Because I get rid of all the bot comments because nobody's going to want to submit a million bot comments and have to pay a dime for each one um, but it, it's it's a serious problem.
3: Uh, so yeah no i I uh, generally agree with 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 everything um Russell said I, I think it's 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 an interesting sort of disparity between sort of how it's perceived on the one hand and sort of how it's actually playing out in practice on the other. We at the administrative conference um, did a Program on this last fall, and I thought one of the best comments uh, was from Professor Cynthia Farina, uh, formerly of Cornell Law School, and she sort of described this as being like pink eye—that that, that uh, basically it, it looks terrible, uh, but it's really not all that bad. <laughs> and um, I, I I think that perhaps you know there are certainly instances where uh, this you know poses a real problem, but you know I, I think the Ballus study that you mentioned, Caroline, um, really. Uh, it doesn't surprise me too much in the sense that I, I think most agencies have sort of put procedures in place. Some of the technologies, like Malika was discussing, that uh, really allow them to deal with the problem of these mass comment campaigns. Now, uh, there are instances, FCC net neutrality, I think, being the perfect example, where it's such a massive number that it really overwhelms the agency, but. You do have instances where basically ninety plus percent of the comments are virtually identical, and therefore the agency can use these technologies and really, uh, really discounts those, and it, it doesn't end up derailing the process too badly. Uh, so I think it really sort of depends upon um, the particular rulemaking, sort of how much public attention it actually draws. Um, of course, you know, I think as the technologies evolve, this may become more and more of a problem. Another thing that came up is with the bot comments, it's currently pretty obvious, you know, what's a bot comment and what isn't. They're very unsophisticated. Uh, but as these technologies become more sophisticated, I think it's going to become more and more difficult to actually distinguish what's a legitimate comment or what's a human-submitted comment and, and what isn't. Yeah, I
4: would agree. I, I... I learned that most agencies actually outsource the the first pass of reading public comments, especially with the large-volume docket. Um, They'll usually contract out a third-party vendor to, you know, basically organize Say you have 100,000 comments on a docket. Like, no one person is going to sit through and read all of that. Um, So they'll scan the data, um, parse it again, uh, and then put it into different buckets, right? You know, Oppose, like strongly agree, strongly disagree, and like everywhere in the spectrum between. Um, but what I think is really missing from that calculus is the actual content of the comment. Um, sometimes you get a thousand comments that are like pure emotional rhetoric. Um, mm-hmm. They really lack substantive value. It's just, I do not like this regulation. Like, please take it off the books, right? Um, whereas if someone can come to the docket with a well formed argu- argument, um, talking about how this will actually impact their life, their business, whatever, um, with cost-benefit data, should those comments be weighed, you know, more than something that's just emotional rhetoric? I think that's actually a, a more important question. Um, how are we, you know, weighing comments if we should be?
1: Uh, I think that's I think that's exactly right. I think it does come back to what Reed's talking about with these purposes of rulemaking. So Russell's paper he discusses the extent of this problem and. Uh, and, Reid, I saw you as sort of pushing towards um, agencies sort of more often on the technocratic, so looking for these relevant technocratic. And, Malika, I see both sides, like having that participation, being able to upvote, but also making sure we have that relevant information. And I think there are solutions. Um, you know, we didn't get to a slide about the technical advisory committees, but I think these solutions are very interesting and worth considering. But it just it took me down a path where... Um, we might have to decide what we want from the commenting process. What's the point to get to what is the optimal approach and how we're going to sort through parse, if you will, with the, uh, with the comments. And my question is, who, who is going to make these changes and implement these changes? And what I mean by that is, you know, certainly Congress can require changes to APA commenting norms, but I don't think anyone's holding their breath on that. Um, perhaps the courts can interpret Uh, the purpose of commenting under the APA, but they have tended to sort of leave that to the agencies. And so if that's the case, then will agencies have any incentive to deal with this problem? So to either take democratic accountability seriously where we think it might matter to get the valiance of, you know, uh, the value people put on uh, different uh, high-stakes issues, take the technocratic expertise seriously in others where that's the important issue, form these committees, and I'm just not sure. And then would the president ever require something like this, if not the agency? But unlike procedures like cost-benefit analysis that have an aspect of sort of information generation that's sort of useful to the president for other reasons besides just quality control for rulemaking, um, these, they're, they're just going to slow down any president's policies, really, to form this committee, etc. cetera. So... I am just I just don't know who's going to do this.
4: Yeah, I have thoughts here. <laughs> I, I have uh, particular thoughts because it's very timely. Uh, my company works mostly at the state level right now. And that was actually intentional. We didn't want to go to federal first because I think states actually have a lot more room to experiment and try new technology. And every state is like a miniature policy lab, right? And they have their own ways of doing things. Sometimes I disagree with them, and I think that they could be updated. Uh, But we are actually just started working with the state of Tennessee, and Tennessee has sort of like two tracks for rulemaking. There's a rulemaking hearing, which is a rulemaking that they are definitely going to put through public comment, because if they don't, there will be an uproar. And then there's just basic rulemaking. It will be a very limited window of public comment, but nothing new. It's usually technical. It's updates to the regulation. Um, but for the rulemaking hearings, they, the one with the, like the extended public comment period, they take it very seriously. You know, they are inviting all the stakeholders to the table. Um, they're syndicating. They're going out to different regions within their state and holding, you know, meetings with people and saying, "Tell us what you think about this rulemaking," um, and it's treated very democratically because they they don't want the rulemaking to reach, you know, just towards the finish line and then it be shut down um, by the courts or someone else. So they they take that you know, as a legitimate concern, um, but for the other side of things, uh, they've they really just streamlined it and made it so the public comment process doesn't slow down something that's kind of an arbitrary change. Um, and I like how they've struck that balance, and the agency's incentive, to get to your point, is that um, the rulemaking process is already very long at the state level, um, sometimes seven to nine months, which is a while for them. And if they've, you know, gone through all of these different stages and gates, and then get to the last step, and then it's shot down uh, because someone complained to a legislator, uh, that just restarts the clock on everything. So they would rather um, really consider public participation at the onset, um, so that they can, you know, complete things in a more expedient way. Uh,
3: so, so I think you've really sort of hit on the key question here, Caroline. And I think I think Malika's example is is excellent because. Um, I think that really, you know, like the state of Tennessee, you know, really has, and probably most of the states, you know, have more more flexibility here uh, than what we're seeing at, at the federal level. So, you know, you've all read the extensive uh, literature on the idea of ossification in the regulatory process. And I think at the end of the day, at least under the current system, as to your question as to who would implement these, it's the agencies. And I think you're right that they have basically zero incentive to actually do this. Uh, We run into this at the administrative conference all the time. We issue recommendations to the agencies, and they say, that's a great idea, but we're not going to do it because uh, we don't have the resources to to do this. Um, And I think this is particularly true in the the notice and comment process. So uh, Malika gave the example of seven to nine months, in uh, the state of Tennessee, it can be substantially greater than that, you know, at the federal level. Years and years that it takes an agency to get out a rule. And this is just with traditional notice and comment. Um, so uh, I think in order to really meaningfully reform uh, the process, it would ultimately have to be Congress or or the president. Um, and, uh, you know, I think notice and comment is obviously... Uh, a very long-standing vintage. I think it was one of the key uh, innovations of the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, but I think it's arguably time to start rethinking whether this should be sort of the be-all and end-all of the public participation process. Maybe it's worth uh, allowing more flexibility uh, in certain cases to try some of these different approaches that might be more tailored to what the agency is actually looking for in the particular rulemaking Rather than having an across the board standard where um, notice and comment is basically the, the primary, you know legally required, at least you know, under the EPA mechanism for, for soliciting public input. Because I think you're right. Under the status quo, the agencies just really don't have much of an incentive to actually do any of this.
2: Yeah, but bear in mind one thing the one entity that hasn't been talked about that you raised are the courts. And you might say, well, what's the role of the courts in this? And I probably tend to agree with you, the two of you, that maybe they don't have such a role. But, you know, I just finished an article on nationwide injunctions, and it looks like everything gets gets litigated just about today. And not uncommonly, judges think they need to not only issue injunctions, but they need to issue nationwide injunctions. So it wouldn't surprise me to see courts weigh into this because people don't... If they don't like what the agency's is doing, they're looking for any reason to challenge. It's It kind of reminded me of an old joke in which I actually include in the article, which is that, you know, there was a this conversation overheard in heaven where they said, you know, Peter, Peter, come quick. God thinks he's a federal judge.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I... I'm not as sure about the courts taking this opportunity now to expand their um, uh, muscle in this area, especially since we have some justices on the Supreme Court that have already on record sort of questioned courts applying more procedure to agency rulemaking sort of along the Vermont Yankee line. So, but, um, but I, I am hopeful that agencies sort of internally and maybe using the states as laboratories um, could show some of the value in this. But the last thing I'll just I'll ask before I, before I open it up, um, something I've been thinking about a lot. So you make it easier for uh, folks to participate, and you know, in some of my own work, you make it easier for to make data more accessible so that people can actually see what the agency is uh, using the inputs and comment on it. But will this lead to more useful, relevant comments? Going back to you know, Rees touching at the APA language, um, and I'm. I'm not so sure about that. Um, I f- uh, and but I'm not. Sh- but I want there to be more. And so I thought maybe it's it's more than that. Maybe it's part of just making uh, our citizenry more informed about what agencies are doing, even if it doesn't lead to. So if Malika's uh, platform kind of gets taken in, and <laughs> regulations.gov could really use what you're talking about. You're telling me. Um, <laughs> uh, then maybe it becomes this. Uh, popular thing to sort of look into what agencies are doing and make these votes, at least we know what's going on.
2: Well, bear in mind, there was a point where when you talked about very technical regulations, that it was really only sophisticated entities that were able to comment, because they're the ones that had the data, they had the expertise. Um, With the internet, something I mentioned earlier, with the internet, a lot of this data is now available online. So if you want to comment on an environmental situation, you can find what you need online. And you know, one commentator noted that, you know, what's transformed is that instead of this being limited to certain agencies, now somebody sitting in their living room can put together what they need. Now, whether they're sophisticated enough to put together a good comment that's gonna influence the agency is another matter but it it certainly has the potential to transform administrative rulemaking in that way.
3: Yeah, I I agree with everything Russell said. I think that's exactly right. I think it lowers the bar somewhat, you know, such that it uh, perhaps opens up the audience to to some extent who can participate, and then particularly for the sophisticated parties, uh, you know, like, for instance, Malika mentioned commenting on comments and that sort of thing. It perhaps enables... Uh, a more iterative and, 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 and useful exchange among, you know, particularly the well-connected players. So I think marginally it does, does make a difference, and perhaps longer term will have a, make a more profound difference.
4: A radical idea, but what if uh, instead of just, like, typing a paragraph or many paragraphs as your public comment, you just filled out a survey that the agency issued? Because if we want more constructive feedback, like that's going to be particular to each rulemaking, right? And the questions will be different to each rulemaking. But what if the agency knows what questions they want to ask, and you know, seeks uh, answers relative to those questions, and just says, you know, fill out this survey, telling us what you think about this proposed rulemaking. Um, that might be a way, and it does also create a barrier to entry, right? Because now you have to like take the time to fill out the survey. So hopefully, you get more nuanced perspective but then the agency actually gets data and information they can work with. Don't forget
5: about the paperwork
4: reduction act. I know. <laughs> well, has any agency actually followed the paperwork reduction act, though? That's an entire another panel.
1: <laughs> Let's hear from the audience. Perfect. Am, am I doing this? Uh, is all right. Um. We have three pan- uh, questions right here, so let's take it in some order. Let's.
5: <laughs> yeah, I was uh, very interested in Malika's uh, uh, idea about keeping the rulemaking open. I used to have an office where we had regulations, and some of the most, you know, you adopt rules and then, uh, you know, people speculating what the effects are going to be. But when the rules actually go into effect, it's really important. And some of the most important um, comments we got were after the rules went into effect. You know, and I was wondering if you could take what take what you suggested about keeping the rulemaking open, and <coughs> putting it into the Code of Federal Regulations, so people go to you know a lot of these you know especially small business people and public, they don't pay attention to rulemakings. Okay, but once these things are in effect, the, rule, the lawyers tell them this is what you got to do. And it would be really nice if there was a place where they could go and say, do you realize what the effect is on me? And, you know, if that were open, that other people who are having the same effect on their business or their lives could go there, and you'd have to have it monitored some way, but I think that would be extremely helpful in, uh, you know, future rulemaking, like you suggested, keeping the the rulemaking open, but a lot of the the people who are really affected by these rules, they're not going to know what the rulemaking is. All they know is... What their lawyer told them they have to do in the next year, and they might cite them the, you know, the the, uh, the uh, citations of the rule. And I think it'd be <laughs> good for, the, for the agencies and for rulemaking in general if they had a place to go easily, and that would be public. For maybe other people could chime in and say, "Hey, yes, I've had the same effect." What do you think of that?
4: Yeah, we're on the same page. Uh, a lot of Right now, I don't think it's really happening at the federal level, are adopting something called retrospective review, where they're reviewing their regulations on a particular case <coughs> maybe five, seven, ten years um, to analyze the effects of it after it's been, you know, active for however many years. And in that time they're collecting public comments and uh, asking business owners, okay, you're being impacted by this like OSHA rule. How, how, how is it affecting your business? And that's a nice way to collect data, you know, post-mortem, if you will. Um, but I agree. I think having a living docket, um, a place where people can go and air their grievances or positive things, too, right, um, could be helpful.
1: Oh, let's hear from the back.
6: Yeah. Um, this is an interesting panel for me. I was uh, Commissioner Chairman of the Federal Election Commission when we had one of the first of these bombs I remember we got about 110 or 120,000 comments, which was just overwhelming back in 2004. It was unheard of on the 527 issue that uh, Don McGann talked about briefly at the keynote uh, today. Um, And and, you know, it was, it's a waste of time. I'm not sure if this is more of a problem than just a nuisance, Uh, obviously technology has solved a lot of it and you can sort comments and there's all kinds of good things. But I also wonder if maybe the way to solve this isn't technology, and here I, I mean, not by trying to get ahead of the technology, but by going backwards. The APA was written in an era of paper, and it was written for paper. And I wonder if we wouldn't do better to just say, okay, file your comments. They are filed on paper. One comment per submission, you know, one one you can't collect a gazillion of them and send them in. It, it kind of is a, a version of Russell's idea of putting a little transaction cost on it. I'm going to put a little slightly higher transaction cost on it. <laughs> Say, go ahead, all, you know, all the comments you want. You still have the web there, and a reasonably sophisticated, smart person can get the data, prepare a comment, and submit them in writing, and then we'll get the people who really care and not the people who would write us in those days comments like, you know, I'm so mad at the corruption in American politics, and you better do something about it. Like, okay, you know, that's, that's very helpful. Um, so uh, not to put Malik out of work or anything, I, I just wonder if, if maybe we should think about using the technology for which the APA was intended until such time as we figure out how to amend the APA.
3: So, so I'd have to speak to that briefly. I mean, I'm personally very sympathetic to that, to that proposal. I mean, I think basically what you're doing with something like that, and you know, there were several uh, proposals we discussed like this, is basically raising the barrier to entry, making it more difficult to actually uh, file a comment. And I think in a way it sort of goes back to, you know, the technocratic to, versus democratic. Uh, if you require somebody to put some skin in the game, essentially, even if it's just the, you know, challenge of actually typing out a comment, uh, you're more likely to get something more sophisticated. So uh, for those of us, and I generally put myself in this camp who see this as more of a technocratic exercise, I think there's something to be said for that. The counter argument, of course, would be if you see it as more democratic, then you're making it more difficult to participate and uh, perhaps thwarting some of the benefits, the democratizing benefits that the internet has has made available. So it's, it's a d- difficult problem.
2: Yeah, and you know. I'm sympathetic to the idea but i think the train has left the station you know I, I just don't see us going backwards at this point to to paper
1: so we're five they don't minutes have any place
2: over. to store it anyway
1: so we're five minutes over but let's hear andrew's question and then we'll all ponder it during the break and talk to each other
7: i mean first of all it's just to say that at the department that i worked at department of transportation we had a lot of these good hygiene practices. I mean, there were routine extensions of comment periods. There were, and oh, by the way, even when it closes, we will consider comments to the best of our ability. Uh, there was retrospective review, all of this stuff. Um, but all of that comes with risk. So my modest proposal was kind of the other, the flip side of, of what Brad just said, which is to say uh, it seems there's somewhat Agreement. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but it feels to me like all of you kind of lean towards the technocratic side here and you say it's less about democracy and more about uh, technocracy. So if that's the case, there should not really be a problem with eliminating the requirement in the APA that you consider relevant materials. Just open the door to everything. Uh, uh, Agencies will now have less disincentive because they're not worried about legal risk with opening everything up, keeping it all open, I don't have to worry about sorting because if I miss something, so what? But I'll go back because, you see what I mean? So I think part of the disincentive for agencies is the, is the legal risk associated with uh, having to consider all of these comments. And if you take that away, many of them may be more incentivized to start being creative about collecting comments and, and
1: analyzing it. And with that, let's thank the panel. <laughs>